As you're getting out your Bibles, we're, we're going to be jumping back into our witness series today and advancing our narrative in Luke. Um, in, in previous weeks that we've been in this book, Ron took us through thoughts of how Luke probably came about to write uh, the events because he wasn't present as they were developing. Uh, so the good doctor is taking on the role of a historian here uh, in order to write these, these very sanctified accounts that uh, we've seen in the first two chapters. Um, his technique in opening this book is to stagger uh, between two divinely supernatural events, two uh, miraculous conceptions, two miraculous births, and eventually the array of miracles that would ensue. Um, while both of these events have, have major similarities in uh, their delivery, uh, their functions uh, are, are exceedingly different. Yet in the same vein, their purpose comes together as one uh, and become the, the catalyst in, in unfolding uh, God's redemptive plan. Um, today's narrative begins with a very fitting phrase. It, it says, when it was time. Uh, in this case, it was referring to uh, the baby, John, being born. Uh, you, you know when your wife, if, if you're a husband and you have kids, uh, you know when your wife looks at you and she says, honey, I think it's time. There's no question about what she's talking about, right? You're not saying, okay, honey, the, the game's almost over. Just give me a, a couple minutes. Um, everything is put on hold in life because uh, uh, things are happening in a way that, that just can't be reversed. Time has come. The baby is coming, whether you're ready or not, when it was time. Uh, but the, that phrase here, it depicts a, a different event as well. It's, uh, it's one that is supernaturally imminent, um, let me summarize the story. A woman had a baby, um, and the people there thought it'd be best to name him after his father. Uh, the parents preferred to not do that and name the baby John. Um, and, and immediately, Zechariah's hearing and speech were miraculously restored to him. And finally, the people that were there um, saw what was going on. They were astonished and, and wondering who this child was going to be when he grew up. Um, but the final phrase of this passage is what really sets the stage for the entire counter, the entire encounter. The final phrase is, for the hand of the Lord was on him. Here's why I say this. Uh, we read stories like this, and it, it can be easy to see the characters on the page, and, and we make them the focus. Because often we read each story in isolation, we forget that there's context to consider and we immediately look for personal application. How is this going to speak to me as an individual? And we forget that that's not the entire purpose of the Bible. If that happens, wonderful. But that doesn't always happen. We forget that, that truly any story we're looking at is simply just one chain, one link in the chain that connects us to God. In reality... The main character of this story and any story is really always God. This is his word. It's his testimony, which means that behind it all, behind Elizabeth and Zechariah and John's birth, behind Mary or even Jesus's birth, it's God's story and his power at work to make that story into a reality. 
So with this in mind, it's quite fitting that we begin today's message with that. That not only uh, was the hand of the Lord on John that we see and we can apply, but Luke reminds us that the hand of the Lord is, is seen in all of these events. It's seen uh, through Gabriel when he appears to Zechariah the priest as he's uh, offering incense at the altar. And he gives Zechariah the news that he and his wife Elizabeth would produce a son. We see uh, then again his hand later as, as Zechariah goes home. And though barren and elderly past the point of being able to have kids, Zechariah and Elizabeth conceived the son that was promised to them. We see God's hand through Gabriel again as he visits Mary this time uh, and brings word that she would bear a child too. But this child would be conceived and put in her womb by God himself. And that child would be the savior of the world, the savior of her people and his kingdom and his reign would never end. We see God's hand in striking Zechariah for his disbelief, struck him mute and deaf. And we see that same hand restoring those senses to him in today's passage. God's hand is actively painting all of this into, ex- into existence. It's in everything we see and we read and everything we experience. So the story is easy to understand, but there are extravagant displays of, of who God is in every corner of the story as he is truly the main character. So, with that in mind, let's read through the passage together. Verse, uh, we're going to Luke chapter 1, verse 57. It says, When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free. And he began to speak, praising God. All of the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was on him. In last week's message, as Mitch uh, mentioned, I talk about talked about how much of a communal, close-knit society the Jewish people were at this time. Um, and, and this fact is what makes the oikos principle so effective. If you want to know more about oikos, go online and, and listen to that message. Uh, but Luke gives an example of an oikos experience here. As Elizabeth is sharing the birth of her son with all of her neighbors and all of her relatives. Um, now, births were a cause for celebration back then by everyone you knew, which uh, still goes today, uh, but especially if it was a boy. Sorry, girls, you, you got the short end of the stick on that one, um, and sometimes still do. Um, but here, her oikos is, is sharing in the excitement as she gives birth to this eagerly anticipated child. Uh, the joy that would uh, accompany this birth just had to have been unparalleled because 
there are multiple levels of significance in this birth for everybody. Uh, first, uh, it, she ha- Elizabeth had to be overcome with elation because uh, she would finally be freed from the stigma of being barren and child- childless. Uh, that, was, that was shameful for a Jewish woman at this time. It was an embarrassment to her and her family that she wasn't able to have kids. So finally she was freed from that because the Lord brought that freedom and her oikos who was gathered, to, gathered together that day became witnesses that the Lord had shown great mercy to her in verse 58. And they experienced relief for her and they shared in the joy with her because of that mercy. Aren't we fortunate that God is merciful? We are. If you don't know it, we absolutely are. Mercy is in his very nature. His compassion he extends to people who are sinful and undeserving is just simply incredible. His his loving action that keeps people from getting what they do deserve is nothing short of astounding. I I genuinely think that we don't understand the the depth or the breadth of his mercy. I I don't think that we're capable of, of understanding it. When bad things happen uh, to us, it's easy to uh, dwell on that circumstance and and challenge the fact that a loving God would never allow such afflictions to to occur. Uh, Elizabeth had her opportunity in, in her being barren, but if you think about it genuinely, is there any situation so awful, so heinous and so damaging that that God's mercy is nowhere to be found at all? I think we would be utterly flabbergasted if somehow we were able to uh, be aware of all the times that God had shown us merciful acts. I'm talking about the the millions and millions of times that, that we're oblivious to. The times that we don't even realize mercy was necessary because God had already gone ahead of us, showed us that mercy, and protected us from the suffering that could have occurred. The the mercy that God extended to Elizabeth uh, is a testament to God's good nature and, and his loving nature to undeserving people. So her friends and, and family witnessed this mercy and they shared in her joy. Okay, but the celebrated child, uh, he, he would be different from other, other children. And this is the, the, the multi-level of significance. The final prophecy given to Malachi before the 400 years of silence was in fact about the forerunner of the Messiah. In Malachi 3.1, uh, he tells the people, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And then earlier in this chapter, Gabriel in his announcement makes it known that Elizabeth's child would be the one that Malachi's prophecy spoke about. He tells Zechariah in verse 16 and 17, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Other accounts uh, that we see in the Bible corroborate Luke's findings, uh, such as 
Matthew, uh, which in Matthew chapter 3 gets tied back to prophecies that Isaiah made. Uh, and it's applied to uh, John the Baptist in, in chapter 3. It says, This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. For centuries, Israel had waited for this moment to come because they knew that soon after the Messiah himself would, would arrive. And it's no coincidence that the 400 years of silence began with the prophecy about the forerunner and that 400 years of silence ended with the fulfillments of that same prophecy as John was born. So Elizabeth's oikos wouldn't only take joy in her freedom from shame, but they would delight all the more in the fact that the forerunner of the Messiah had arrived, that this boy Elizabeth held in her arms would be great, that he would be the one to turn people, the people of Israel towards God as the final messianic prophet who would usher in and prepare the way for the Messiah to deliver and bring freedom to all of Israel. History is unfolding right before their eyes. Prophecy is being fulfilled right before their eyes. And as this entire encounter is all about God, the first thing that we can see is that God's word is true. When God speaks, he doesn't speak anything but truth. This is affirmed throughout the Bible. Psalm 119, 160 says, all of your words are true. 2 Samuel 7.28 says, You are God, your word is true. Paul tells us in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 that God is one who does not lie. And Hebrews 6.18 says it is impossible for God to lie. Then Jesus himself uh, confirms it in, in John 17.17. 17, he says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So in addition to knowing about his mercy... Isn't it wonderful to know that, that uh, and, and to see that God's word and his promises are always true? That it's not just something that Christians like to say because it sounds good, but by the witness of, of this story and the integrity of the Bible, we have proof that, that God's promises will be kept. He promises uh, that those who receive him will become children of God. God promises forgiveness to those who ask for it. He promises wisdom to the ignorant. He promises to be the strength that's needed by the weak. He promises blessings to those who ask for it. He promises heaven and eternal life to anybody who calls on his name. It's a comforting and really remarkable revelation that God has given us to know that he keeps his promise. And we learn that right away in our passage today, that God's word is true. The second character development that we see and is made clear to, in today's passage is that God is gracious. Starting in verse 59, it says, On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said to him, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who has that name. Apparently, they really, really liked the name Zach Jr. Uh, because they turned to Zechariah 
uh, to, to discuss it with him. They didn't like Elizabeth's decision. So Zechariah asked for his writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he writes, his name is John. Now, in Leviticus chapter 12, God gives Moses very specific instructions on how and when circumcision was supposed to happen. Uh, God's law commanded that on the eighth day of a baby boy's life, that that baby was required to undergo circumcision. Um, It was a procedure that every single one of the males in God's God's, uh, chosen people would undergo in order to set them apart. It would be a mark that would identify them as a nation altogether, but um, it would also connect them directly to the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 17 where circumcision was first introduced. Circumcision was the evidence that they were Abraham's direct offspring. And and as we see in John's case, people were present during this procedure. Um, Dr. Bruce, is that a common practice today? Multiple people come in and watch the baby get circumcised? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's basically Dr. Bruce and the baby. Um, but back then, uh, people watched it. <laughs> it wasn't a requirement of God's law. That, that's not found in Leviticus 12. Um, but it would develop into a tradition for the Jewish people. Uh, it, it, and that was because they needed to verify that the circumcision was actually performed. If there was a question later on uh, as to whether or not this certain boy underwent circumcision, those people who were present that day could testify to the fact instead of assaulting the boy's modesty to prove it. Um, In addition, it was also not required to wait on naming the baby uh, until the eighth day, which is what we see uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah did uh, for whatever reason. Uh, Probably being in a, a strong Roman cultural influence, uh, they followed suit because the Roman custom was to name the baby seven to, to nine days after it was born. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know why they waited, uh, but have you ever waited to name your child? We did. We never found out what our kid's gender was going to be uh, before they were born. It's like, surprise! You know, it's, it's the only way to go. Um, so we had names picked out, and when we found out our second child was a girl, we had two names ready. And we just could not decide which name to go with. She was either going to be Leah or she was going to be Eden. We couldn't leave the hospital until she was named. So for 24 hours, we had this unnamed newborn baby. We're talking with her. We're holding her. We're loving on her. And it was such a strange feeling to have her there with us but not know what to call her. And finally, literally, as we were walking out the door, they, the nurses handed me the paper, and they're like, you have to name your kid. And I'm like, okay, her name's going to be Eden. And I wrote that down, and that's how she became named. Um, <laughs> it was really weird to have this unnamed child for 24 hours, so I can't imagine what it would feel like to have an unnamed baby for eight days. And then people ask you, you know, hey, what'd you name your baby? And you're like, Eden. And they're like, oh, oh. You know what you should have named him? I love this name. And you're like, I don't care. I didn't ask you for your input. Um, at least 
that was the common conversation that we had with our kids. Uh, and, and not much has changed because it was a common practice in the time of our story as well. Um, it was highly esteemed. Uh, it was a highly esteemed gesture to name a boy after the, the father or the grandfather. So naturally, the people who were there that day suggested that the baby be called Zachariah. Um, and it was obviously confusing to them when Elizabeth was adamant that the boy be named John. Uh, after all, we see that there was no one in their family who had that name. So why in the world would she name him John? We know that Gabriel gives instruction that he should be named John, but apparently these people didn't hear that part of the story. Um, perhaps they felt that she was overstepping her bounds and, and being assistant, insistent. Um, so they turned to discuss it with Zechariah. In verse 62, it says, they made signs to his father. And we tend to think of this as, as talking with hands and making uh, sign language. Uh, but the, but the, the Greek word here really means to express uh, by nodding. So these people are talking to Zechariah as one would nod to ask for someone's input. You know, like, do you like that or do you want that? This kind of thing. Um, so that was the sign language that they were actually doing. Uh, now, earlier in the chapter, Gabriel chastises Zechariah and makes him unable to speak. He says, you will not be able to speak until the day this happens because of his disbelief. Uh, but it seems to be clear that by this uh, narr narrative that he wasn't able to hear as well, which is why the people would have been making signs to him. Otherwise, why wouldn't they just ask him, right? So he wasn't only mute, but he was deaf. So for nine months, Zechariah had been chastised and he had learned his lesson by now. Uh, he knew exactly what the boy was to be named. So he asks for his writing tablet, which was nothing more than a piece of wood smeared with wax. And they would take a sharp object and they would scratch whatever they needed to communicate. And that way they could smear the wax back and they could use it over and over again. So he took that board and his writing utensil and he scratched in his name is John. And the people were astonished. Now, for me, this is where things get uh, increasingly interesting uh, as you study and look at these things. Why does God desire for them to name him John? God, throughout the Bible, does not get involved in the naming of kids uh, very often unless he's changing someone's name. He changes people's names, but he doesn't usually give people's names at birth. Uh, I mean, give him any name. He's going to be doing the same things. He's going to be the same person. So why did he want him to be called John? Do you want to know why? I just think this is fascinating. John means God is gracious. God wanted the child to be named God is gracious because extending the message that God is gracious would be his entire purpose in life. So John was named appropriately for that purpose. But here's where it gets even, even more awesome because everyone in this story had purpose in their names. We can see the entire story of redemption just in the names of the people in this encounter. First, Zechariah means God remembers his promise. God made a promise to Israel that he would raise up a Messiah who would be the savior and deliver them. Next, you have Elizabeth, which means 
God is the faithful one. God will be faithful to keep the promise he made to Israel. John means God is gracious, which is a a wonderful alliteration that points to Jesus, which means God saves. How awesome is it that, that God's grace is contained even in the names of the people that he used to launch his redemptive plan? God is gracious. So just as mercy is in God's nature, God is a God of grace. When Adam, thank you, Joe, when Adam and Eve uh, chose to disobey God, uh, their spirits died and sin became rampant in in man and was passed down from offspring to offspring. And, And the presence of that sin in our lives caused a rift in the relationship with God. And man would eventually become destined to pay for the sin in their lives in hell for eternity. The wages of sin is death. But even though God incessantly hates sin, he has an unquenchable desire to be with us who act in sin. So he displays his grace and offers forgiveness And through that grace, he's glorified. I I, I think it's awesomely unbelievable to think that God's glory is not produced by some triumphant vindication in in eradicating a, a, a species that's completely deserving to be destroyed. That doesn't glorify him. His glory is produced and and further amplified by giving us what we don't deserve. By giving us something that we could never, ever earn. And that's why in 1 Peter 5.10, God is called the God of all grace. We are sinful, but because of God's, God's uh, gracious nature, Romans 5.20, where, where sin has increased, grace has increased all the more to a point that we see in Romans 6.14 that we are completely covered by grace. That grace that would come through the one that John would point to, through Jesus Christ, who would live his life perfectly and die on the cross for our sins. This gift of grace is is given to man undeserving as we are because God's nature is to be gracious. And even for those who would vehemently reject him, that gift of grace, that saving grace is perpetually made available for whenever we would decide to, to receive it. So if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to do that. There's no ritual that you have to go through. You simply believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. We have a a very easy acrostic here that we like to use to remember the core beliefs. Uh, It's the ABCs. We A, admit that we're sinners and died on the cross. admit (laughs) Admit that we're sinners and in need of a Savior. We B, believe that uh, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And we see, choose to follow Christ and put our faith in him alone. 
If you've been moved to believe those things today, please come and talk to one of us after service because we would absolutely love to talk to you. God's word is true um, and he is gracious. Two characteristics that are made evident in today's passage. The final one I want to share with you uh, that we see is that God's power is wondrous. God's power is more than we can even begin to fathom because he is all powerful. Psalm 62 11 says that, uh, that power belongs to God. He owns it. And all throughout the Bible, God's wondrous power is, is exhibited and demonstrated for everyone to see. We hear him referenced as God Almighty. He's the one who has the power to create and he has the power to destroy. He has the power to give life and take it away. He has the power to resurrect the very life that he had the power to take away. Mary in this chapter is told that nothing is impossible with God because all power belongs to him. The word we use is omnipotent. Omni meaning all and potent meaning power. All power belongs to God and any power that you or I have, we have only because God chose to share just a little bit of the power that belongs to him. And his power is wondrous. As if the naming of John was not astonishing enough for people, uh, the display of God's power in verse 64 must have really shocked them. It says, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free and he began to speak, praising God. Some people uh, take what's called a talking fast. Have you ever been around someone who's done that? Um, if you have, they, they don't talk fast. They fast from talking. They abstain from talking for however long. Um, have you ever been around someone who's done this or you've done it yourself? You know that it's hard to communicate without words. So people will typically carry around a notepad or a dry erase board or, or something, and they'll write what they want to tell you. The frustrating thing is it takes forever. It's much quicker to talk. But if you're writing everything out, it, it's just frustrating. But imagine having to do that for nine whole months. That would be incredibly Difficult and frustrating. But for nine long months, Zechariah had to endure that chastening of being unable to speak. For nine long months, he carried around a board that was his, the only means of communicating with other people, slowly and painstak painstakingly having to write out anything he wanted to say. But the instant Zechariah uh, confirmed that the child would be named John, his mouth was open and his tongue was freed and a stream was unleashed. A stream of expletives that... No, you didn't get that joke. He didn't cuss. <laughs> Just making sure you're awake. He didn't cuss. He didn't unleash a stream of expletives. He unleashed a stream of praise to God. Praise and worship that he needed to do as a priest and a part of his job. Uh, but more importantly, it was praise and worship that he wanted to do simply as someone who loved God with everything in him. God not only set his grace on display, uh, but he set his power on display. And how quickly do we see that it occurred? It says, immediately his mouth was opened. 
This is a word that throughout Luke is accompanied with a host of uh, miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, and it describes God's intentionality in healing. It's not something that was just left to chance or just might have happened. But the fact that these healings are immediate is, is a statement that they are miracles intentionally forged by the power of God. What an incredible moment it must have been for those people there to, to witness, which is evident by how quickly word spread in verse 65. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. The wondrous power of God showed up that day. And all the neighbors spread word about it. They spread word about uh, the miraculous conception and a miraculous birth. They told others the prophetic name that was given to a child and followed by the instantaneous healing of an old deaf and mute priest. It's this wondrous power that we see present in the life of Jesus and later on in the life of the disciples as Luke goes on to chronicle uh, the events that happen in his book and eventually will go on to write the book of Acts as well. It's this type of wondrous power that orchestrates all of these events into a package just waiting for someone to spread word about what happened. And it would become the preoccupying thoughts of the region as people wondered in verse 66, what then is this child going to be? Is this it? Is the forerunner really here? The Messiah, the Savior, is going to come soon? God's word is true. It's validated by the countless prophecies that are fulfilled in this, just this one short narrative. God is gracious. It's evidenced and reaffirmed even in the names of the people that would help to unfold his plan of redemption. And God's power is wondrous, exhibited in a, in a miraculous event whose retellings would spread like fire among the people of Judea. And as we move closer to the day uh, the Messiah would come, as we move closer to celebrate uh, that day, we need to be praising God, just like Zechariah did. Praise and worship streaming from our mouths because of the fact that God did remember his promise. And, and God was faithful to keep that promise because God is gracious and God still does save. That's exciting news for us to know despite the fact that it's 2,000-year-old news. So imagine the excitement that people in our story were experiencing. Uh, it, would, it would be all the more as, as the hand of the Lord was on him becomes Luke's inescapable conclusion that God is, is propelling human history irreversibly forward uh, into an age of redemption that would change the world forever as they knew it. Not just human history, God's history, his story. The people used in the story simply help to illuminate that which makes it so much more 
than just the one about John's birth. Let's pray. God, it can be a sobering reminder that the Bible's not about us. It's not about the people on the stage or of the page. Uh, it's, it's, it's simply about you. It's about displaying the character uh, that you are and the essence of, of who you want to show us. And God, we pray that each and every time that we open up the Bible, that we would be reminded of that, that we wouldn't first seek to figure out how this is going to be applied to us, but that we would seek to see what you are doing on those pages. Help us to remember that your word is always true. Help us to experience your graciousness and experience your wondrous power. Thank you for John, the forerunner who points to Christ, your son who saves us. In your name we pray, amen.